0: Hello, everyone. Happy to be back on our 2022 podcast series on Contingent Workforce Radio. My name is Julie Skagel. I'm the content marketer here at Upmost. Our podcast today is brought to you by Upmost, the BMS transformed, enabling your full talent supply chain in one global network. Today's podcast is featuring our head of client services, Erica Novak, and the manager of global contingent solutions at ServiceNow, Justin Barber. So if you can take a minute to introduce yourselves to the audience, that would be great. Erica, why don't we start with you? Hi, everyone. Erica Novak, head of professional services for utmost of the last three years, but really been in
1: contingent space. Oh my gosh, almost from a kindergarten to college age students focused on helping companies build the best contingent workforce practices that they can. Happy to be here.
2: Thanks for having me here as well. I'm Justin Barber. I oversee ServiceNow's global contingent workforce program, and that encompasses all of our non-employee labor and outsourcing and temporary workers. I've been in the contingent workforce space for about seven years prior to ServiceNow. I was with a managed service provider and then started my career as a recruiter back in the day.
0: Awesome. Thanks. So just to set the stage for our listeners, Justin and I were at a recent BMSA event and I was listening in uh, to him speak about on his session about co-employment and the extended workforce. And I think while your statement initially focused on compliance, your overall message really focused more on worker experience and treatment. And that seemed like such a good fit to bring you on the podcast today because at Utmost, we very much are passionate about talent, how they should be treated, their user experience, and giving them the integrity and transparency that they need. We're thrilled to have you here. Here to do a deeper dive into what you're seeing. So let's just start at a high level, Justin, especially post-pandemic, there's more pressure on the enterprise to respond to pace and pressure, digitization, digital transformations, work from anywhere, global implications of work. With all that happening, how do you think the extended workforce plays into
2: this? Certainly, you know, every point you brought up is key. And so the first thing that comes to mind for me is considering why the contingent or the expanded workforce plays a part in here is look at the population of this workforce. You can look at this population globally, but then also if you take it down to the enterprise level, it's not uncommon for it to be 30 to 40% of an entire enterprise workforce population. That reason alone shows that this is a really important population of workers that we should be looking at and they play integral part to an organization. In addition to that, it's not uncommon to see that the individuals have a high skill sets, the sometimes niche roles, Sometimes they're very common positions that the market is just challenging to fill from a full-time perspective. So, And then take one more factor that I look at consistently is this is also a talent channel because these workers convert to full-time employees as well. So you look at all these factors, how large this extended workforce population is for enterprise, the fact that they're highly skilled individuals, the fact that they're converting to full-time employees for organizations means that this is an area that we have to focus on. And you simply just can't be overlooked because of that.
0: Absolutely. Erica, what do you think, just jumping in on the struggles that you see with how companies are really managing and engaging this significant part of their workforce?
1: Yeah, no, I echo what Justin said, like 30 to 40% of the workforce is massive and you can't help and support people. You can't see. So like the biggest problem is they don't know they're there, right? So outside of co-employment, we'll say, ah, the (laughs) ghost of co-employment from 1995 through early 2000s. Let's put that aside, which is important. So we'll hit on it. But I would say most of the time, people aren't tracking it well. Or maybe there's a name, but there's not a supplier or they don't know how to work with them. And so the idea of if you want to treat people as talent, if you want to actually support and help them to be productive and loyal and provide quality, you got to know they're there. So I think that's the biggest first and that it's not just your contractors. I think contractors are probably over the last 20 years, the ones that the industry as a whole have really focused on, but it really hasn't been around the treatment of workers. It's been on the rate rationalization and time card. And there is goodness in that. But when you think about systems and when you think about policies, when you think about programs, it still hasn't been focused on the treatment of the workers and contractors are about, let's say, seven to 10 percent of t- usually your total contingent workforce percentage. And then there's 90 percent of that contingent that you're actually still not tracking. And so I go back to like the biggest struggle is they don't know that they're there. And if they do, they're not tracking enough data. And if they have, they don't know how to reply. And so I really am a big believer. You guys have heard me say this again, visibility begats so much goodness. Mm -hmm. If you want the care and the creation, appreciation and support of people, you got to start with being able to see who they are as individuals, as a Justin, as an Erica, before you can actually start getting into how do you actually onboard and treat them well.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important. So talking a little bit about how to track this workforce, what are some, I guess, advice or learnings that you've had with our clients? And Justin, feel free to jump in as well on really how to track the various types of worker classifications. Yeah, there's
1: several different ways to do it. The good news is you can start at basic levels, and move up to intermediate and to kind of like expert or a deeper maturity or whatnot. But I think the important is to make sure that you are tracking them as people and engagements and you're consolidating the data together. Typically today, some things are being tracked, but it's like an appeal system or a badging system or a provisioning system or something in your VMS, something maybe in your HCM, but they don't actually talk to each other and they don't share information. And so Erica Novak may end up being uh, Novak comma Erica, E Novak, Erica Halverson, which is my maiden name and they don't actually tie together. And so the thought as I work with our customers and kind of around the industry is making sure you're able to say who's an individual like a unique individual that's coming back if we're going to work with Justin's team, like coming back to service now time and time again. And what information can we have all in one spot about that person? I think that's really what becomes really important from the get-go. I mean, Justin, what are your thoughts? What are you guys doing today?
2: You know, you're you're spot on. The visibility is so important. It's key. And if you think of, well, I think of back to my time with an MSP, the value prop that a lot of those VMS systems and MSPs provide at the front end is, visibility from there once you have visibility you can look at some of the cost savings things you can look at where the gaps are you can look at where the compliance risks are it all starts with if you don't know who they are or where they are, you really can't do much else downstream from there. so it does start there and that's very key and then foundationally we're building the infrastructure for that visibility is having clear categories you know what what is a temporary worker to you company a? What is a consultant to you, company A? What is an independent contractor, an outsource worker, a service for all these different terms that are thrown around that are used interchangeably? What are those categories? And then you start funneling the workers into it. And then you have a lot more understanding of how many workers do we have doing what, doing where, spending how much on them. And then you can then focus further on, okay, where are our compliance? Which is this population of workers that are making the biggest impact that we really do work directly with, that we're really converting? I really need to have this focus on this experience. Because when you think of experience, and I think of experience of trying to make it a better contractor experience or experience on site. Some worker populations, you really do want to steer away from that because they're you know true outsourced engagement. So looking at it as all in one picture is not the right way. So you have to have the visibility, you have to have your categories or classifications. And then from there, you have the opportunity actually to start digging in deeper and making some uh, critical business decisions and building a strategy around that workforce. Yeah. But uh, you know as you mentioned, Visibility, it sounds so simple and straightforward, but it's definitely not. And that's a key component of managing the extended workforce. And
1: I think you hit on a good point because what I think where people have gotten trapped is especially, and I think again, and I love what you guys are doing because we've been trying to change employee experience to worker experience or talent experience because then it's a little bit more inclusive. And I think some people wow. have gotten trapped on the, well, people say, yeah, I don't really know if I buy into that. Well, it's not the highest priority. And so to start with the visibility to get to that end goal, the idea has been, well, is it a cost savings, efficiencies and risk? And so people will say, well, how do I get started? Mm-hmm. I want this, but no one's really gonna buy into that yet. And so we kind of say, well, ah, frame it in. All right, let's get the basic around compliance and savings or so. Well, Now you have the data. And now to your point, Justin, we can say, all right, here's what we expect. And let's let's even get rid of classifications. Let's say this. Here's what we expect. And the the experience we want people who are coming, and let's pretend COVID didn't exist for a second, who are coming on site. Anyone Mm -hmm. who's coming on site, we want them to feel this when they come in the door within the first day, week, six Mm -hmm. months. Anyone who may be coming in just habitually, but not, we want this. And someone who may never be coming on site, we want this. You can start to kind of delineate what that experience is for each of the role-based or project-based or ongoing, like vendor-based relationships. Mm -hmm. But if you can't get to that first, because someone's saying like, well, that's not the most important thing. Compliance and savings almost open the door to anything in HR and legal. They'll say, ah, we're not going to pass an audit or, ah, we didn't sign these documents. What do you mean 30% of my workforce has not signed a confidentiality agreement or an intellectual uh, property assessment? Or, ah, you know, IT will say the systems and security agreement to say, if I give you a laptop, that means you're allowed to this. What do you mean all of my consultants haven't signed this? That will usually get people to say, aha, let's do this for that. And then that becomes your long game to say, Mm -hmm. all right, now I have this data. Now let's go back and say, based on these workers, here's what we can do. So again, hint, hint on that. There's ways to back into it, knowing your end game is this, (laughs) but you got to get someone to approval first.
2: Yeah. I think someone said once data helps make informed decisions, right? Is that the statement out there? (laughs) Well, I think that holds true, especially when you're thinking of 30 to 40% of your workforce.
0: Yeah. And that reminds me too. I mean... It's not just tracking, like you've said, it's how they're being treated. And at BMSA, during your session, Justin, you had said that starts before they're even engaged with the organization. So I think this population, because it used to be 3%, 5% of the total workforce, it was sort of seen as an afterthought. Now it will become nearly half of the workforce in most organizations. So how are companies, how are, is ServiceNow or companies that you've worked with really looking at how to engage, attract, um, and treat this population before they walk in the door.
2: Yeah, it's a very good point to mention that the experience starts before you walk in the door. Think of even as an employee, when you were getting a new job, your experience with that organization starts maybe when you saw their their company profile on LinkedIn or somewhere and you applied and the automated message you might get from the ATS system. All of that is really experience. So your experience with a company starts way before you are on their payroll. You know, so on the contingent side, There's an added layer there typically, you know, uh, unless you're direct sourcing, you're working with staffing vendors. So it starts with me thinking and understanding who are my staffing vendors and how are they operating? What type of benefits they offer to their contingent workers? What are the recruiter's manner in reaching out to candidates? Are they more of that text and using technology and AI and bots to reach out to candidates? Are they picking up the phone and talking to this candidate that's now going to say, yes, please submit my profile to ServiceNow. And then once their profile is in, do we have the right Processes in place to move through recs quickly to make sure we're feeling Rex. So, that scary MSP is the black hole that you sometimes hear isn't the experience that the candidate is eventually getting, not just the vendors. So, from the moment that candidate's applying, working with one of your preferred vendors, all the way to when they get their offer, now they're here, now they're in our environment, and they're going through their onboarding experience. And we have some things that we've worked on with our onboarding experience that really does kind of help them, take them on a journey really through their first day from everything from getting. Their laptop setup and orientation to where to submit requests for expenses and things of that sort. It's just making sure that every step of the way, that experience is part of the focus and something that we've actually crafted and built to ensure that it's it's meaningful to them and that they feel, hey, you know what? This might be a company that if they're offering me a full-time role, yes, I want to join. Because that's what I keep in mind. Right now we convert a high amount of our contingent workers to full-time employees. So that experience is important because it's a strategic talent channel for us. So it definitely starts way before. Recruiting company ABC calls them to the moment we're potentially offering them a full-time role or rolling them off their assignment.
1: I couldn't agree more, especially because we've all lived in the world where we've had contractors be like, "I don't want to join your organization if I'm treated differently as a contractor." Oh, and then as soon as I get my FTE badge, right, you hear from blue to orange or red to yellow or one, oh, mm-hmm. now I matter, right? It's a step in to understanding like how people are treated inclusively within a company, and when we think about tech, again, my background is similar to your, Justin's, like in the Bay Area tech is if one company treats you poorly, you have to go 45 steps mm-hmm. to hit another one, right? And then another one. And the competition is so fierce in a good way. Over the past couple of years, it really has refocused on the individual, where do I want to go. What about my life to look like? How does this company treat me in this way? And so I couldn't agree with more of the setup of how you treat and work with people and the evolution. I remember when onboarding of a worker would be like seven different emails from a staffing company and an MSP and your background and you're like, what are we doing? Everything's on the Mm -hmm. phone. Why are we having this onboarding process be so one lack of transparency? What comes next? What's going on? The delays of background checks are insanity. And everything is still kind of this early 2000s feel when we're in 2022 now. And so, especially if you're a tech company or a big company or trying to say we're changing the bar, we're a startup, our experience should feel different. But if you onboard folks with kind of old school Victorian practices. Like, are we really moving the needle on things like that? And so it hits on people on like what their experience is going to move forward. And I would branch out to say this works with freelancers, and independent contractors. I remember when I was with LinkedIn, we talked a lot of because they're vendors, it's very easy for procurement teams to say, put them through the supplier onboarding process that like, guys was built for massive suppliers. so. 120-day pay term does not make sense for Eric Novak, uh, LLC. right? Going through a financial ERP system that takes this much time. I see compliance that's not friendly. You see a lot of speakers, presenters, talent, ch- coaches, trainers say, it takes 75 days for me to work with company X, and it takes me two to work with company Y. I'm going to go with company. Why? Right. And so it's at a contractor where maybe it's more of a role pace. We have a chance to actually sit and work with Justin, but it's also for the vendors and individuals. Again, vendors are people, vendors are people. We need to remember that what those practices and ways to kind of bring them in and say, Hey, we're different. Absolutely matters. And then it becomes, and Justin love your thoughts on, all right, now they're onboarded. It's been a month. What does care and treatment look like For these workers after they've kind of gone through initiation? How do you not forget about them through their assignment?
2: Yeah, no, that's the area I feel is forefront of our focus is now that we have some measures in place for the onboarding experience, orientation, all that, and we have expectations on our partners that are supplying us with talent on how they should handle the sourcing to hire uh, process. And now they're here, now they're in our environment, now they're our responsibility. And so we're definitely looking at is how can we improve the experience of Including them in different meetings, whether it's trainings, whether it's a diversity groups, and those type of things that add to that experience. So that it's not do the work and log your timesheet and go home. Now there are the complexities that we have to take into consideration with legal and all those. And depending on the company's risk profile, they might say absolutely no all hands meetings, absolutely no employee resource groups, absolutely no swag as a recognition for joining that. But how can we start to push that a little bit. They're, they're contributing so heavily to a project or a launch or a team. Does it really hurt to, to send a hat or maybe it's a branded t-shirt to make them feel valued? And those are the things you have to take the steps and really look at the big picture of what is the value to us by kind of turning that dial a little bit. And what I've been able to take advantage of again, going back to my earlier point is that we're converting them to full-time employees. And if they're eventually going to be our employees, we want them to want to be an employee for us versus the as you mentioned, walking 15 steps next door to the next big tech company, especially in the Bay Area. Candidates have choices. And even though they're on a contract with us for six months, eight months, offer a full-time role, if they didn't have a good experience as a contractor, but they can probably see that great experience is coming for them as an employee. But what's the guarantee that they're going to accept that versus going next door to someone else or a competitor and using the skills they learned elsewhere. So it's definitely the next piece after we focus on the supplier part and the staffing vendor part, focus on the onboarding experience. Now it's On assignment, what are we doing for that time period? They're here. There's a lot of different thinking.
1: I love that you said that because it's interesting. The hack conspiracy, right? Like, oh, they're going to sue us and ask for employment status if we gave them a hack because it's just one more thing for lawyers or the government. Like, oh, and actually it's one of those interesting things where there is a bridge where a lot of those times, either a governmental audit or a class action lawsuit are the two things people are trying to avoid on this co-employment, oh, what's too much, what's enough or whatnot. And what's interesting as we've kind of done more research on this is the likelihood of someone joining a class action lawsuit or the likelihood of someone like, kind of participating in a government audit or whatnot actually lessens when they feel connected to the company. Now, there's always bad actors. So let's just say it. there was always an outlier who's mm-hmm. like, sweet, anything I'm in because I'm going to get my paycheck. Usually, guys, it ends up being like $97 after it's all said and done. But generally, the good actors are it's the trust, appreciation and productivity. Yes, they want to hack it feels cool. But most of the time when I've heard complaints, it's because they felt they were operating in a silo or they were so arm's length, or like, it just didn't feel like anyone listened. Very rarely have I seen it because I just didn't get this t-shirt. I really wanted this all hands. It really comes down to, I think, Justin, what you kind of said is throughout, did they feel like they were part of like, and again, part of the team makes people very nervous, but like the respect Mm -hmm. of getting work done. Most people, again, there's bad actors. Most people want to do a good job, regardless if they're a contractor, a freelancer, a consultant, outsource. People like to do good things and they like to be seen, Mm -hmm. and they like to be appreciated, and they want the opportunity to do well. That really, what I think about of care and kind of non-employee treatment that I think goes across all classifications is more of what it's all about, is how are you setting them up for success and saying, Justin, I'm so glad you're here. Like To me, care is not a co-employment issue. Productivity is not a co-employment issue. Appreciation is not. And clarity of what they're doing is not. And those are the things I think sometimes CW programs are missing. And whether it's contractor, freelancer, or outsour, whatnot, like it's that part that has the fear that they're missing, that actually I think programs are set up beautifully to provide operational steps to help overall companies do it. And so that's been like my... Desk just saying, guys, mm-hmm. no, you're missing the bigger thing. Focus on that. So, I mean, Justin, love your thought on those are not co employment. Agree, disagree, anything to add? I
2: definitely agree in certain ways because this is their livelihood, A. So you're right. Most want to do well with this job so they can get the good rating, get the good reference checks, all that. So, for the most part, you do want to believe that people want to do a good job and that certain aspects of recognition is don't necessarily raise the risk profile. I feel like it's a totality of the Absolutely. experience. And factors that kind of increase that risk. Is it in a silo that one hat because we're giving it to the entire team because everybody did really good for this release, or is it I'm kind of picking out this one worker that you know they've kind of told me they're on the fence about becoming an employee here. They have some other offers. I'm trying to kind of convince them to really want to work here. And What is really the the, the totality of the situation? How you're handling them because it's, I don't think it's one individual. Instance, but you definitely don't want to set precedents. You don't want to create bad habits and you don't want to open yourself up to unnecessary risk. I'm a very risk adverse leader, but I also recognize the changing market and landscape. And I also recognize that talent is consistently choosing to be in a contingent or independent or freelance. If we want to keep tapping into this great talent market and remain competitive in this you know, war on talent, I use the hand quotation. we have to look at how to obtain all these different types of talent, how to retain all those different types of talent, make them excited about being a productive member of our organization. and whatever. Contractual way that member of our organization looks. So again, to answer your question, I think it's the totality of it and a lot of different factors, but I don't think it's one individual hat or T-shirt that's really making it. And a I difference. love
1: that you and you guys. He did do the quotes. I know he said it out loud, but I, watching him do the quotes, <laughs> I went to something that Larry McAllister from NetApp had done. He's like the VP of TA over there, and I love this quote. It's short and sweet. The war on talent is over. Talent won. And I love that because it's the idea of, yes, they get to define their terms, especially with this great resignation and reshuffle. And talent goes across all classifications. So I think your point's 100%. It's not a one thing. It's the totality of like how they were set up to do good work and how they want to continue working with you, which I think is really the goal. Ideally, if it's a contractor you want to convert to employee, awesome. If it's a contractor who doesn't, you want to bring them back. Fantastic. If it's a freelancer, if it's a larger vendor that you're doing work for, how they engage in the contract process and how deliverables are. Typically, everyone's now being evaluated both sides. Are you a company people want to work for or do you have a bad reputation? And vendors and individuals alike get to make decisions on where do I want to spend my time, which I love it. Mm-hmm. It's the great equalizer right? It used to not be quite that mm-hmm. way. And again, I'm enjoying watching, okay, how do we actually encourage more people versus, I think in the past, and i love your thought on that again, being a barrier baby, you probably know this. Sorry, calling myself that, not you. There's a lure of, well, we have the cool name, so they should just want to work with us. Our name can kind of smooth over any rough edges that maybe a manager treated them or how the thing is, They would just be happy to have us on their resume. So don't worry about it too much. I love your thoughts on that. how a brand name of a company can actually kind of hurt people when it comes to how we're treating people.
2: Yeah, this is is a great question. And recognizing that I work for a company that has a really great brand name and that is attracting talent. I definitely know me personally and some of my peers, we don't really rest on the fact that our name is going to be enough to bring in the talent. And while we have a great product, we're growing really fast. We're really leading the industry in a lot of different ways. Candidates still have other choices, so you can't rest on the name alone. And I think that mentality definitely. When I first started recruiting in the Bay Area back in you know 2014, a lot of companies really hindered. It. It's like, hey, look, I can take three weeks to fill this rec, you know, and let you give them feedback because like they want to work for us. You know, they want our name on the resume. And right now, it's definitely not the case. Yes. Candidates want to work for ServiceNow, but they also have bills to pay. They also have a livelihood. They also have a career to keep focusing on. And if we're not going to be the right place for them to reach their career goals, they will go to one of the other great companies out there that will offer them that, especially in the Bay Area. Now, I think what's been unique is this remote work world of work to where it's worked in the favor for a lot of companies because we can tap into new markets, especially from a diversity standpoint. You can tap into different markets and attract candidates from other places. But the name alone is not going to be the deciding factor for every candidate. And so can't just rest on that being the factor and say, hey, we're okay because we're service now. We're okay because we're company a- ABC. You have to take it a step further.
1: Break your brother. Right. Because <laughs> most of the people who listen to our podcast are CW program owners or MSPs of large companies. And typically what I see the CW program is pretty good about it's the managers who sometimes are like, well, <laughs> But no, I, 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 again, I couldn't agree more. It becomes about individual interaction. It becomes about how the team is fostering collaboration and letting them do good. I love your thoughts on this. Feedback has always been a no-no on, oh, it's co-employment. So manager, give feedback to the MSP. who will give feedback to the staff and supplier who give it to the. I love your thoughts. Knowing, here's a disclaimer, guys, he is not an attorney. Do not take this as advice advisor or not, but I, I want your <laughs> thoughts on how do you provide feedback to contractors, freelancers, consultants in a way that, again, promotes a good well-being and, and, and lets people do well and be coachable, but doesn't break the lines of what we're supposed to do?
2: When I think of this, I, I definitely put my more risk adverse hat on in some ways, which I know from this topic of we're trying to expand on this experience and make a good having a risk adverse hat backtracks that a little bit, but the guidance I try to give, and I have a great MSP partner that really is try to be innovative and collaborative and really navigate through some of these scenarios and not just have a clear blanket approach to everything, is what's the context of the feedback? If the feedback is going to be feedback that's like, hey, we might need to backfill this person if they don't step up, then that definitely needs to go through those appropriate channels. If it's feedback that might directly help improve the job and it's like a tweak, it's like, hey, you're doing this and this is good, but have you tried it this way? It's really intended to help continue improving on the role. Then maybe it's a double prong approach. Hey, vendor MSP, we're going to have this conversation it's not negative it's not impacting their job it's just hey it's a slight little tweak is there really a, a risk there and just giving that kind of constructive on the job in the moment feedback is saying hey you're using zoom for the meetings and you're sharing appropriately or you're not sharing the right size of the screen and that's maybe a bad example but i really think of what's the context of the feedback that's important but whenever it comes to negative feedback. Feedback that's truly detrimental to their role, maybe have to backfill. I still feel that should go through the MSP to keep those lines clean. Hey, you're doing good? Sure, why not? It'll tell them directly, hey, you're doing good. I don't think someone's going to say, translate, hey, they said I'm doing a good job, means I'm an employee of the team. Now, hey, you're doing good. You're a great member of our team. We love that you are contributing to our team and that being a part of the team, like how you're starting to tr- communicate that, that might be the, where the blurs line." So I always try to give my managers guidance, understand the context of it, and then decide they were saying, oh, you have feedback? No, that can't go directly to them.
1: No, like it's the the it's 1990s. Awesome. I don't know if you remember like the this, not that. They used to be like, eat this, not that. It's like how to eat better in your day or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly right. Of if we want to set examples for managers who don't have time for a lot of training is if you're able to provide examples and document or videos, it says like, hey, when you're thinking about this, mm-hmm. fantastic. Let's do this, not that. So modeling can help make those mm-hmm. really easy.
2: Absolutely. We spend a lot of time building really the infrastructure, training, guides, resources, And I do feel the MSP has a very large part to play in this because they're the ones interacting daily operationally with the business. So if you and your MSP are in lockstep on how those type of feedback channels should be handled, I think you're okay. Again, whenever it's brought to me, I just like to understand the context. And then from there, I can say, yeah, this is okay. Go ahead and let them know. Thanks for letting me know. I'm also going to let their employer know that this is a conversation that's happening or thanks for bringing this to me definitely pause in that conversation. Let's loop in their employer.
0: This is great. I just have one final question for you both as we sort of wrap this up. So Justin, you've been a program owner in the past and because we deal with the contingent workforce program owners a lot, what do you see as some common pitfalls that the program owners or the programs fall into either intentionally or unintentionally when it comes to the extended workforce?
2: This is a good question because what I think intentionally... We get into pitfalls by not having the right structures in place, right training, guides, materials, and just the infrastructure of the programs as programs continue to start to scale. And I think going back to an earlier conversation of when you're looking at visibility, do you even have the right categories and classifications? Have all your cross-functional stakeholders agreed to those procurement, legal, RMSP, all of what those are, so you know how those different rules and parameters uh, go into play for each one? So I think some of it's intentional of, hey, do we have the right structure in place? Before we start to add all these new services, before we added a direct sourcing, do we have these other areas of our program taken care of? Because I know being with an MSP, we're, we're always trying to move our client forward, get the next service here. We see there's all this SOW outside spin. Let's get a program in place for that. And I think sometimes trying to move so quickly to address the new shiny problem. The new initiative, the new innovation. If you don't have the infrastructure and the foundation for all these, and some of that's the non fund stuff, the policy documents, you know, training documents, resource guides, internal website for your program, all those things that might not be as fun, but they are absolutely critical as you start to expand and innovate. And unintentionally, I think assuming that individuals know, like a hiring manager knows all these different backend processes and things that they should take about managers. Beginning of the day, end of the day, and they want to hire the best people and get the work done. They might not know, well, I engaged a consultant, but I want to put them on an SOW, or I engage a temp worker, I want to put them on a SOW, but I want to pay this and didn't know you had markups. A lot of times they don't know all that. So, you know, some of it's unintentional based on just not really understanding how to best operate. But I think as long as you have the right infrastructure and foundation, you focus on that first before you start growing and expanding, then you can avoid a lot of pitfalls. And that's really where I've come in uh, with my current role is trying to just make sure we have the right infrastructure, make sure we have the right foundation because the service now is growing so fast. I want to avoid those pitfalls, whether intentionally or unintentionally, a year from now, two years from now, when we might be significantly larger. Let's be honest
1: with the people. Managers don't just know, they kind of don't care. They want you to tell me, how do I do it This way? the fastest way possible? <laughs> I think it's interesting. Like in an HR procurement world, sometimes we love to educate. And I, I couldn't agree more on the infrastructure foundational. You are so right. That is the basis of everything. And then because how do managers do it as quickly as possible? Sometimes they don't want to take the big training or whatnot. Like, Just show me how to get this done. And with the foundational pieces, the videos, and honestly setting your program up in a way that is flexible enough because contingent's great. Some people clearly fall into contractor. Some people clearly fall into freelancer and so forth. And a lot of folks, like you kind of said, well, what if I have a temporary worker, but I want to pay them on retainer, what box do they fall in? You're going to tell them no? What if it's a secunded resource from legal? Where does that fall into your program? Do you send them somewhere else? So I think some of the pitfalls are we can be very pragmatic. Here's my operation. You must go down this way or no. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, all right, my job operationally is to say, how can we fit this into something that we can, you know, the quality efficiency cost risk quadrant that SIA has taught us all, right? How do I put that in the mostly middle or so? But again, I I double click on what you said is the unsexy stuff, a contingent is the foundational things that you can rely on and should be on there before kind of the fun bells and whistles, because it starts to crack if you don't have clearly defined definitions. And policies and onboarding and help and a team to support. The other thing, and I love your thought on this, Justin, is I think we push suppliers away and we say, great. i also talk about one specific CW program that I'm aware of where it's they don't have a, an orientation for everyone. and We'll say specifically for contractors, no orientation. And every staffing supplier is supposed to onboard their workers in their own independent way. And then everyone kind of comes on and gets started. And one of the reasons why they say they want to do it is one is co-employment and they are suppliers, owners, so they should be responsible for. But what they're finding is everyone's coming in with like way different information, some none, some not, right? Some all had different experiences and there's a ton of questions afterwards. And so I think one of the pitfalls that I see is not setting your suppliers up, whether or not you agree with that formula or not, let's say you keep it or let's say you centralize it but making sure your suppliers understand your company's expectations. Yes, they're the employer, but here are the standards that, uh, let's say, a service now. We're expecting everyone to do at least this bar minimum in this way because here's our culture. What are your thoughts on like the supplier interaction between yourself, MSP, and the suppliers on how you guys are setting expectations for these
2: workers? Yeah. Great question. It's it's something I've seen handled a variety of different ways in my past, both with MSP and, and now here. For me, it comes down to what is the program? How does the program view their suppliers? Are they providers of talent? Meaning all we really want is just get us the people to where we can handle them. And then that's all. We don't really care how you onboard them, how you pay them, how you treat them. Don't really care. We just want the talent versus are they really truly preferred strategic partner? Are they a true integral part of your program? And so the programs I both manage and both have here, while today I don't interact with our suppliers a lot, they all know the expectations I have as a program owner and they and my MSP knows the expectations I have of any vendor joining that program. And we're fairly selective and I've tried to always run very selective programs because if you have a massive population of 50 to 100 suppliers, a lot of the things we like to do might just be really hard to do. So it might be really difficult to establish those consistent processes, we have that massive of a a supplier base. So going back to the previous question, what are some of those pitfalls? Unintentionally or intentionally having a very large supply base makes a lot of those aspects challenging. So having a lean, consolidated, focused and optimized supply base and viewing them as true partners to your program, if they feel valued they're going to structure their operations, whatever you need them to do. If they truly see, hey, there's opportunity here, we're a strategic partner in our program, we're one of 15 maybe even versus one of 50, they're going to structure and set the program because I absolutely do think consistency across the board. Because if you think about the experience, we want contractors, regardless where they're coming from company A, we want them to have a consistent experience getting in because they talk and they know what company did you come from, who are you working here? want that experience to be consistent. And I think the vendors find value in that if they understand it's part of the strategy.
1: hundred percent. I'm so glad you said that. I got a big believer in that, right? Like a true partnership with your suppliers. You don't need 50 to hundred. And if we go back to something you had said earlier, experience happens at the time of, let's say submission. Usually if you have 50 suppliers getting a wreck, they flood the exact same 12 candidates. So that candidate experiences a thousand cold emails coming from people. And they're like, Mm -hmm. whoa, I don't want this. So when you think about, like you said, a premier group of suppliers that you can consider as partners, knowing that account managers, their goal is to get every wreck. And to grow and X, Y, and Z, that's their job. But if you're able to kind of focus them on, here's the why you're on this wreck, and you're one of few, So you have a high percentage ratio of actually getting this fill and here's the expectations that is so spot on of how to ensure consistency. And then they're bought in. They're like, all right, I am seeing this fill rate. Hey, if I'm obeying my service now practices, my fill rates are going higher. Everyone's getting paid. I'm getting good quality feedback. Likely Justin and team will refer me to someone else because things are going well. So there's a phenomenal trickle effect that comes from that.
2: Staffing companies want to make placements. They're in business too, but they're not just doing us a favor here. And however you want to look at it, when they are making placements and their contractors are staying on the entire time and they're converting down the road, the suppliers are happy. And the more business they will get, the more they are viewed as a strategic partner, they'll structure their internal teams to have you dedicated recruiters, dedicated account managers. They'll say, whatever onboarding process you want us to follow, we will follow because we see value in adapting and structuring to what you need because we see what the ROI is going to be there clearly. If there's no ROI for them, you can ask them to set up certain things. You can ask them to have dedicated teams, but they're not going to do it. Speaking to any of my MSP or program owners here, if you ever walk into a recruiting office for a vendor that's supporting you, there's usually a big whiteboard, all these different programs. You want yours to be up top (laughs) and the ones that have the quickest feedback, the best onboarding rates is debatable here and there, but they're going to prioritize and, and you want them to view you as a strategic That's partner. That's exactly
1: right. I love your thoughts on this is as far as pitfalls of programs that they are unintentionally intentionally, how do they care for their workers is the idea of having like an anonymous or confidential place for them to give feedback. The idea of can now employees give feedback to the CW program or end customer versus staffing supplier and MSP. And that, I I know there's some controversy and some people love it, some people hate it, but we'd love your thoughts on, we're talking about caring for these non-employees. Do you think that's important, giving them a voice for feedback?
2: Yeah, I do think it's important. And it can be as simple as having an email alias to your MSP and funneling those to them and they bring it to us. But it's not like they have to have that avenue. But I think that also goes back to their vendors and making sure that when one of our staffing partners places a worker it's not a, All right, here you on assignment by it's checking in with them frequently it shouldn't have to wait for a problem to arise before feedback is given so I do expect a our staffing partners to check in frequently with those workers that are placed if it's on the staffing side check in frequently but say it's one of the independent contractor or a freelancer how long they're here might vary so the feedback they have you can use that alias for it. so I say a hey, at least have an alias so we're going to your MSP I don't necessarily want those funneled to me today, but I do you know, look at our MSP and they, they like to feel that and they share, hey, these are some of the things we're hearing from the worker population. And they may not tell me exactly John Doe said this, but hey, these are some of the things we're hearing and just to keep on your radar, but really their employer to be checking in frequently with them after their first week, after the first 30 days. So they're proactively trying to gather that feedback and address it with the MSP. And maybe it's just between the MSP and the vendor and they bring it to me if it's a larger issue, but I definitely think the worker should have the opportunity and the mechanism or resources to be able to provide that feedback. Now, how it's translated and provided to me, that's going to vary most certainly between programs.
0: I love it. Erica, Justin, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate your time. Thanks to the listeners tuning in and we'll see you next time on Contingent Workforce Radio. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Guys.
2: Thank you.